It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, February 3rd, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Striking back after the deaths of our troops while avoiding a wider war in the Middle East. That's the goal, but can it be done? I don't see their current course as anything but leading us to be as, if not more, uh, implicated in these regions than we have been in the past, which is a route to, to disaster. I'm Jared Halpern. House Republicans are pressing ahead on a potential history-making impeachment votes of the Homeland Security Secretary. This is something that the founders talked about, about malpractice and maladministration for administration officials. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. U.S. airstrikes hit the headquarters and ammunition depots of Iran-linked militants in Iraq and Syria Friday night in what is expected to be an opening salvo in the U.S. response to a drone attack last weekend on U.S. troops in Jordan that killed three American soldiers and wounded dozens of others. Jessica Rosenthal spoke with Elbridge Colby about the escalating tensions in the Middle East before those U.S. airstrikes began. The bodies of three U.S. service members killed at Tower 22 in Jordan near the Syrian border were flown back to the U.S., landing at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware Friday, where their family members waited alongside President Biden. In his first press conference since he was hospitalized January 1st following prostate cancer surgery, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said a day before those service members' remains were flown back to the U.S. They risked their lives and lost their lives to keep their fellow Americans safe from global terrorism. The president will not tolerate attacks on American troops, and neither will I. They were killed at a logistics support base located at Tower 22 of the Jordanian Defense Network, where just 350 U.S. service members are deployed. Secretary Austin said we would respond when and how we choose. We will have a a multi-tiered response. He said groups backed by Iran across Syria and Iraq, as well as the Houthis in Yemen, had been attacking U.S. troops and facilities before the Hamas attack on Israel October 7th. But they've ramped up, increasing after that. There are ways to, uh, to, to manage this so it doesn't spiral out of control, and that's been our focus uh, throughout. Secretary Austin said while we're not at war with Iran and do not seek that. It's time to, uh, to take away even more capability than we've taken in the past. And in terms of the, the t- you use the term escalation, we've not described what our, what our response is going to be, uh, but we look to hold the people uh, that are responsible for this accountable. And we also look to make sure that uh, we continue to wait, take away capability from them as we go forward. Elbridge Colby is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and is now co-founder of the Marathon Initiative. Okay, so Kataib Hezbollah said during the, the week that they were suspending military operations against Americans. How big of an operator is that in the region? Because there are multiple others, but that sounds like a a pretty big uh, development. And I imagine Iran would be a a part of that. Or, or, Or do we believe the reports that Iran's lost control of these proxies and they're operating, you know, apart from the head of the snake? I mean, I don't, I don't really buy that. I I, I mean, it's, 
I think Iran's probably in a situation, you know, the famous old story, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest, Henry II, you know, sending them the knights out to kill Thomas at Beckett without actually having to order it, right? I mean, it's actually suits Iran purposes not to know what exactly is going on. And I believe John Kirby or another administration official was pouring cold water on this announcement by Qatab Hezbollah. So, you know, and, you know, Iran might be testing out whether a kind of a simple statement will get them off the hook, um, mm. Iran and its proxy. So, you know, I think the proof will be in the pudding. Maybe that's true. I mean, I think it is most commentators and, you know, the administration, but it's shared by others who don't agree with the administration, like Ray Takei, for instance, and the New York Times recently, is that Iran doesn't actually want a large war. So, I mean, if that's true, that means that, that you know, there is room to push them. And they're, but if they think that they can get away with it, you know, why, why not push? I mean, obviously, they regard us as the enemy. So I think that's probably true. I think there are measures that would go too far and would prompt a larger war, which we don't want. But I think both sides are trying to, you know, sort of see, see where the boundaries are. Let me ask you then to that point, because Friday morning, Iran's President Raisi said, they're not going to start a war, but anyone who bullies us will get a strong response. And then according to this uh, FARS news website, I guess affiliated with IRGC, Raisi said, previously they used to talk with threats and military options on the table. Now there are no such talks, and they say they have no intention of conflict with the Islamic Republic. It is the strength of our people and our armed forces that has created this deterrence. What do we make of that? Well, I mean, I think the IRGC head actually said the other day that they, they don't want a war as well. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of chess beating uh, on their part. Um, I mean, I think, you know, look, they, they are clearly they, they are prepared to defend themselves uh, when they think that they're, you know, if there's going to be transgression against, you know, whatever their core interests might be. But I, I think I think at this point, um, the main signal, and you've seen that along the northern border uh, with Israel, where, where Lebanese Hezbollah, which is, you know, Iran's kind of most formidable proxy, has been shooting in there, but there has been there has been some degree of restraint. So I think that the biggest indicator is that Iran doesn't appear to want a massive war. And in fact, the administration has been, it seems, restraining Israel. Mm. I mean, that's another option that we have on the table which is, you know, at some point, if I mean, my view is that the United States should not get involved in a large Middle East war. But if Israel wants to take uh, the fight to to not only Lebanese Hezbollah, potentially Iran, we should be prepared to have their back consistent with the focus on China and, and Asia. But I think we also have levers. It's not like Iran just benefits from from escalating up the up the ladder. And I think it's important that we communicate that, which I'm, I'm not sure that we're I mean, if anything, the administration seems to be trying to push Israel back into a box, um, into this kind mm. of bear hug. Uh, I mean, there was reporting that, you know, their plan is to get a ceasefire and then put it in such a situation that Israel, even if it says it wants to resume a large effort uh, in Gaza and potentially elsewhere, it won't be able to. So it doesn't sound like the right mix to me. But of course, it's hard to get, it's hard to infer exactly what their plan is from the outside, partially because it's also developing over time. Okay, so, so let's zoom out. The goal okay. is to make this not get bigger than than Gaza, right? That's what Secretary Austin said. But he then said also these attacks on U.S. assets were occurring in Iraq and Syria and Jordan before October 7th. Iran is behind Hamas, which perpetrated October 7th, as well as all right. of these proxies. Do we just keep doing this tit for while Iran keeps funding Hamas and enriching uranium? Like, what is the what is the path we're on here? 
I don't I don't understand what their what their path is to be totally honest. I mean, my view is that I don't really understand honestly and I do this for a living and I I I can't really understand what a lot of the, our forces that are just scattered around uh Iraq, Syria and and I guess Jordan are actually doing. So I I and and they're just they're just asking to be hit and that's what's you know finally the the chickens have come home to roost here where finally some people very tragically were killed of our people. Um and I it just seems to be inertia while they're still there, at the same time, it, these actual forces provide leverage for Iran and its proxies to go hit us at a, at a pretty cheap and easy way, because this is not like attacking Fort Knox or, you know, Washington, D.C. This is like, you know, Indian country, right? Like like a little fort <laughs> out, out there. And so my, my sense is, why don't we pull back some of these forces, not because we are lashing ourselves in the back, but because they don't make a lot of sense and they're not worth the the... the the benefit that they provide, given the cost and the risk, and then support our allies like Israel, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, et cetera, if and as they're prepared to go after and, and push back on not only Iran, but also its also its proxies. I mean, what the administration seems to be doing is kind of trying to like control everything, push down our, our ally like like Israel and, you know, hope that that I, I actually I, I don't fully understand it. But um, mm. but I think that the, the main thing is that we can't you know, the main kind of point that I would say is like China is, if not directly controlling this, it, it's probably a similar relationship in a sense to from to Iran and its proxies, China and Iran, which is like from China's point of view, this is all gravy. This is upside because the right. Americans are sinking. Deep. You know, there was a cartoon in the Global Times, their propaganda math piece about America sinking into this like Middle East Europe quagmire again. This is like win, win, win. And so the administration has been saying, oh, we're going to try to focus on China. But in the meantime, they're just they're just sinking us further into the regions that we we, we need to, you know, we need to, we have interest in them, but we need to kind of deprioritize. That's not an easy problem, but I don't see their current course as anything but leading us to be as if not more uh, implicated in these regions than we have been in the past, which is a route to to disaster. Okay, just a couple more for you. Really, that's an interesting take, especially because we do have so many outposts, it seems. Um, it, it was reported also this week that the, the drone that struck our, our military was likely Iranian-made. We mm-hmm. have we've deterred others, right? I mean, we've been successful mm-hmm. at deterring other uh, drone strikes. This one, we were not. How concerning is it that we couldn't stop this particular drone? Well, look, I think because, you know, in a sense, we've left these forces and, and outposts out to be kind of pretty easy and cheap shots. It's very difficult to deter kind of more pinprick attacks. Obviously, this this one pinprick attack tragically killed three of our soldiers. So that's that's not a pinprick to them. But I mean, it's it's you can't have perfect deterrence, especially when you're you're dealing in this kind of shadow war, kind of gray gray zone type stuff. So I, I think, you know, what we should be focused on is consolidating our own position reducing our vulnerabilities and empowering the the, the countries and, and entities in, in the region and, you know, to some extent, the Europeans who are willing to do something about it to, to push back on Iranian, you know, influence and aggression. Okay. Last one for you, because mm-hmm. you served in, in the Department of Defense. It does not sound like there is, and we we have to say, we're, we're happy Secretary Austin's okay. Um, looks like he's making a recovery from um, prostate cancer, but it, it doesn't look like there is going to be any consequence for the secretary's and White House's failure to communicate about his health emergency at the beginning of the year. For all the talk about how we appear on the world stage, how does the secretary's absence and the fact that the White House 
like was out of the loop on his condition. How does that reflect on us as far as readiness? Well, I, I, I mean, the whole incident is very bizarre. I mean, you know, he said in his um, in his press conference that he was sorry, but that you know he's a private man and that you know he had not dealt with a situation like that before, or something like that. But he was commander of CENTCOM. Did he like take off when he was commander of CENTCOM? The whole th- and the fact that it wasn't aware they weren't aware in his immediate circle is is or not not as his his sort of broader circle is is disturbing i mean i've had you know friends of mine who served in the pentagon in kind of lower much lower positions than that who said i, I wouldn't go out of my you know without letting my chief of staff my deputy chief of staff know where i am so it, it's very bizarre i think it kind of highlights to me um something broader about particularly in the defense department but also others i mean Jake Sullivan gave a speech about China policy, and, and you hear this a lot, and sort of the body language, the implication is that after the Trump administration, the Biden administration people, the strategy wasn't that different on, say, China or trying to reduce our role in the Middle East, for instance, but that they were kind of, quote unquote, the adults in the room. They were going to do a better job. They knew how to work the process better. And I just, I think if we look a couple of years later, you know, the results are, are in, and you look at the results in the Trump administration, the results in the Biden administration in the world are very bad. I mean, it's Middle East, Europe, China, Korea. Etc. And then you look at the kind of bureaucratic, you know, like this kind of nitty gritty stuff that most people don't care about, but it's important. And it's like, well, the secretary is not telling his chief of staff she's on the beach in Puerto Rico. I mean, that's these are the adults in the room. Like, give me a break, <laughs> you know. So um, at the end of the day, uh, it should be measured by results in my in my view. And the results are poor. Albert Colby, former deputy assistant secretary of defense and co-founder of the Marathon Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. A pleasure. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. The House of Representatives could do something next week it has not done since the Ulysses S. Grant administration, impeach a member of the president's cabinet. This week, the House Homeland Security Committee approved on a party line vote two articles of impeachment against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, accusing the Biden administration's top border and immigration official of ignoring and refusing to enforce federal law. It represents both a promise from many House Republicans to hold the administration accountable for the border crisis, while also escalating a huge issue in the November elections. William Belknap, who was the U.S. Secretary of War in 1876, was impeached in a unanimous vote over bribes and kickbacks for lucrative government appointments. He resigned, saving himself from a Senate conviction. An impeachment of Mayorkas will be far from unanimous and may not even have full support from Republicans. As Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram regularly reminds us, it's about the math and the politics. Well, the House has to vote to actually impeach. And uh, as I always say, it's about the math. We have to see if they have the votes uh, to do this. Probably the middle of next week, you had uh, the Speaker of the House saying that they were going to move this to the floor expeditiously. But, you know, I've noticed that there's been uh, some days where there's been absences here on Capitol Hill on the Republican side of the aisle. So they want to make sure that all the people who would vote yes on this are here and present. But the other problem is we're down to a two vote margin right now in the House of Representatives. And if you have two Republicans who vote no, and we're told there's one who's at least leaning no, and that's Ken Buck, a Republican of Colorado, and maybe a couple of others, Mm -hmm. you've got a problem. 
uh, were told that no Democrats would vote for this, so they have to actually vote to impeach. And this is where uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, I've asked him about this in the past. I did not ask him this the other day, but another reporter did, said, will you have a Senate trial? I'm not quite sure that that's the right question, because if they do impeach, the Senate is compelled to deal with these impeachment articles. They have to at least start a trial. Well, what does that mean? Hmm. Well, the House, after they finish uh, impeaching, they would probably take a second, uh, a second vote or a separate vote to uh, impanel their impeachment managers. These are the prosecutors who are House mm -hmm. managers, uh, House members, who go over to the Senate and present the case to the jurors, who are the senators. And they have a little bit of a ceremony here where they parade these articles of impeachment across uh, to the Senate side of the Capitol. The impeachment managers usually walk over. There's a bit of political stagecraft here. And they, you know, read the articles and present them to the Senate. And then if you look at the Senate impeachment trial rules, they have to start by rule at one o'clock the next day. Well, what do they do? Does Chuck Schumer just say, OK, we're going to listen to this for a little bit and move on? Um, or do they do this and then say, we're going to immediately flush this, which you could do. Mm -hmm. You could take I a mean, vote. That, that would be like what sort of like a vote to like just a vote straight up to acquit, a vote straight up to reject the, it, the, the it, articles? It, I mean, you, you could move to acquit right away. You could do okay. that. Uh, you know, and again, you're not dealing with these 60 vote things. You know, a Senate trial right. is a little bit of a different animal. Um, but there's going to be a problem politically for Democrats there. And here's why. Because if you have a vote to acquit or you have a vote to dispense with this, uh, the Republicans at the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee are going to look at that vote cast by John Tester of uh, Montana, Sherrod mm. Brown of Ohio, and Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, and Jackie Rosen of Nevada, and say, ah, we have this polling here that says that the border is so important to our country right now, this is one of the central issues going into the 2024 full campaigns, and yet you voted against, you know, uh, you know, convicting uh, Mayorkas, or you voted to short circuit the trial. Mm -hmm. uh, I can see that ad being written right now. Uh, and so that could be a political problem for the Democrats. Let's talk about the articles themselves. Um, explain to me sort of what the articles accuse Mayorkas of, because the, the, mm -hmm. the, obviously what we've heard from Democrats is impeachment is not something that should be used for policy disagreements. It is reserved mm -hmm. in, in the Constitution for high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, we know, Chad, that Congress can kind of decide what a high crime and misdemeanor is. There's no real guidance mm -hmm. there in the Constitution. There's a couple spelled out, but it's pretty it leaves a lot of it up, up to discretion. So what do the it's two articles, right? What do these two articles accuse Mayorkas specifically of committing? One says that he did not enforce the law. And so, okay. you know, this is something that the founders talked about, about malpractice and maladministration for administration officials um, it, when they were trying to figure out, you know, how to punish or sanction, uh, you know, members of the executive branch. So that was a bit of an issue in the in the constitutional debates and the Federalist Papers and so on. But, you know, basically they're saying he didn't follow the law. So is that appropriate? I mean, is that a policy decision? Well, what that is, is you're saying, OK, that is a political decision to create an article of impeachment to say that that is something that applies to the law. So you see that all of this is going to stem from politics. The other one is that they're going to say uh, that he lied to Congress, that mm -hmm. he did not uh, tell them the truth because he's testified multiple times and said the border is secure. Well, that uh, is that is problem. against the law. I mean, that that would 
I mean, obstruction of Congress it, it, is something that, that has been impeachable. Exactly. Exactly. So that's so, so some people have have actually suggested that might be a bit of a stronger article. You know, we've had situations. And again, when you're down to that two vote vote margin um, where they've had articles of impeachment and the House has not adopted all of them, I would remind you in the Senate trial uh, leading up to the Senate trial for President Clinton. So this was in December of 1997. The Senate trial was in January and February of 1998. But in, in 97, there were four articles of impe impeachment for, for former President Clinton, and they only convicted him or they only um, in, uh, impeached him on two articles in the House mm -hmm. before sending that to the Senate. So uh, maybe is it a jump ball? You know, you have to look at both of these. And again, we've not actually seen how the Rules Committee is going to structure this. You know, this has to go to the Rules Committee next because they, they're right. the gateway to the floor. And do they roll them together? Do, do you vote on one on individual vote articles, both. or do you vote? I, I don't know, as a, as or, or individual. I would yeah. imagine. Okay. I would imagine they do too, because that's usually one how they, they roll yeah. around here, right? So, but again, we're in a different environment. Do you? I mean, is, is there? Is this at a stage in the House because Homeland Security uh, Committee has uh, approved these that there has to be a, a, a floor vote in the House? In other words, uh, I imagine a lot of this weekend and the early part of next week will be. Um, Republican leaders in the House making the case to maybe those undecided Republicans that, that exist. Um, if they do that whip count and realize this may fall short, um, would they take a vote then that, that maybe doesn't have the outcome that, that they would like to see? Very doubtful, considering how much they have talked about impeaching Mayorkas. I mean, my goodness. Uh, to say nothing about impeaching, impeaching the president. I mean, that's all we've heard, you know, for, uh, you know, the entire time that President Biden has been in office. So if they come up short in this and have a, a, a vote that fails, uh, you know, and again, this has been kind of the calling card of this House of Representatives that Republicans, even though they're in the majority, they have a, a real bear of a time getting the votes uh, to pass their own things. Yeah, that could be a problem. They would probably not put that on the floor. Um, Although you might say, you know, you could see an accident because it's so fast, uh, so close. Maybe they turn around and say, oh, we thought so-and-so was supposed to be here. Sometimes they've not proven to be the most reliable vote counters around here either. <laughs> so, yeah, that could happen. But if they, if they seem to think that this is not really the way it's going to go, I would imagine they would not put those articles of impeachment on the floor. And nothing compels them to do so just because you have, you know, reported out of committee. Now, the other thing that might happen... And I, again, speaking of hypotheticals here, is that you could see the Democrats, if they think that maybe this gets down the train tracks a little bit and they don't have the votes and it's clear they don't have the votes, do the Democrats figure out a way parliamentarily? And this is really challenging. I don't know how you would do this, but force a vote on the House floor on the articles of impeachment to force the thing to go down. Uh, I don't think off the top of my head, going deep through the recesses here, that there is a, an obvious parliamentary way to do that. Um, you could, you could, however, uh, discharge what we call a rule. So it's kind of like a, a discharge petition where you go over the head of the leadership, but you have to have a majority of the entire body sign on to that. And then, you know, put that rule on the floor and then put the underlying issue, which in this case would be the articles of impeachment on the floor. Um, that's pretty eight dimensional chess there, yeah. especially dealing with articles of impeachment. Again, like I said, I went so, deep into the recesses of my mind, which my wife might say aren't too deep, frankly. <laughs> but the, that's the bottom okay. line, it sounds like, is that this is far from a done deal. Yeah, probably so. But 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 I mean, I would say that if they've gotten this far and they're talking it up um, their their aim certainly is to put this on the floor middle of next week. So this is happening. 
um, under sort of this broader negotiation, mm-hmm. at least on the Senate, about immigration changes, asylum changes, deportations, things like that, that that are going to be critical to getting this broader security bill over the finish line. Another week has come and gone. We've still not seen bill text. Um, I asked the White House this week if they were kind of working under any sort of deadline or or date circled on the calendar, and they said, no, we're going to let this process work. But I followed that up, Chad, uh, by saying I asked the question because Usually bipartisan agreements in Congress come about because there are dates certain in triggers, whether it be a government shutdown or a default or uh, provisions in federal law expiring. That isn't happening right now. So I guess my question is, how long can senators negotiate before they say we got to sign off on something? Yeah. And this is where there was talk before Christmas, maybe them trying to do it right before Christmas, because why you have that deadline there. They weren't in legislative form to put anything on the floor at that stage. So, yeah, there's no obvious deadline here. Maybe the deadline, if you could believe this, if you could believe this, Jared, might be the next round of government funding in early March, March 1st Mm. and 7th. Maybe somehow that becomes the the deadline, the backstop, because, well, you know, they they can't fund the government. And in you know a month's time, we'll be talking about that again. Uh, So, my goodness. Yeah, you're right. I will say that it was interesting, you know, when they had the Ohio clock stakeout the other day, this is the weekly party lunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, has been there every single time since they've had had these border discussions. And he's leading essentially the negotiations for Democrats, right? That's right. Okay. By the same token, we had signals that this is going to be very soon. Of course, we've heard that before. We heard that at Christmas time. So, yeah. But at some stage, you know, even if they put this out there, it probably has to sit and marinate for a bit. And what people forget in this is that attached to all the the border legislation are things for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. And there are some people are going to say, we've got to get this money out the door at some stage. And Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, he ever so slightly cracked open the door to maybe breaking this off and doing it separately, maybe money for Ukraine. He has been without question the most ardent supporter of getting money to Ukraine in either body, either party, Jared. Well, so, I've asked that you know, question to the White House as well, and so far they have said that they are not asking Congress to break this up because the security package was crafted in a way in which every dollar is needed, and they are not going to, uh, they're not at least at a stage now right. where, where they say that they want to break and this they, up. But, and if but they to do your Ukraine point, separate, the Senate could do that. Forward. I mean, the Senate yeah, could just say, could. we're going to pass Ukraine aid. Uh, and kind of put it, put it then on the White House to, to take it or leave it, right? Yeah, 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 you could do, do that and, and probably attach uh, some Israel money to it too yeah. and Taiwan and that probably, probably works. Um, you know, again, it, it's rare to see something like this kind of sit out there so long. Uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit in a different way of the fight over Obamacare. It took them mm. months to mm. get that together, months and months and months and nobody knew what it was going to look like. Nobody knew what was going to, you know, what the contours of the bill were going to be. It took months. And so this is a similar process. It's a little sketchier, though, because you have people who are working on the bill who aren't directly the leadership. I mean, yeah, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are involved, but it's really, you know, Kristen Sinema and Chris Murphy and James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma. And by the same token, the speaker is cut out of this. Right. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, when she was speaker and they were doing Obamacare, Harry Reid, who was the uh, majority leader at the time, was very much dialed into this. I mean, he kind of let Nancy, you know, gave her a wide berth to 
deal with what she needed to deal with there. But Nancy Pelosi, for the most part, that was her bill, and she was dealing with this up front. You know, so here, the the recipe and the design is is different, and and the fact that it has sat out there for so long, without action. Um, this is where people were starting to say, yeah, the writing is on the wall. It's been on the wall. Uh, John Kennedy, the Republican senator from um, uh, Louisiana. Louisiana, just a couple of days ago, said, I think a couple of weeks ago the votes were there, and now they're not. Mm. And, and I think he might be right, mm. frankly, uh, because they didn't quite have the bill text ready just yet. Uh, that's one component of it. But also, uh, you know, it's an, uh, Mitch McConnell said it best, uh, talking about how the, the politics change. That Consider this for a second, Jared. It was McConnell who said, we will do money for Ukraine, because there was opposition in some Republican quarters to that, if you attach it to border security and get a border security package. And then around the first of the year, that all started to change. And you have Republicans saying, no, we don't want to do border security or this bill. What we know about it is, is going to be bad. And you have Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, dismissing this bill as well. So that has changed and evolved. And this is where Democrats are saying, oh, and even James Lankford said this. Oh, you said we want to do border security. Oh, it's an election. You're just kidding, is what James Lankford said. Mm. Let's finish with this, because there was a big bipartisan bill passed through the House this week dealing with taxes that I think if there weren't 300 other things happening would have gotten a little bit more attention and a little bit more news. Uh, deals with the child tax credit, deals with a lot of issues that Congress uh, oftentimes has a hard time coming together on. Tell me about this legislation, what its chances are in the Senate and kind of how it came together. Well, you know, without inflation, you know, this mirrors in terms of size, you know, the Reagan tax cuts, frankly, uh, $79 billion, uh, bipartisan, uh, the vote in the House, 357 to 70. That is a big margin, bipartisan vote. Although I will yeah. note, and we haven't heard too much backlash yet, but there might be some, uh, that they got more Democratic votes for this than Republicans. Remember, Republicans are in the majority there. It came together because there was something for everybody there, that you had just enough Republicans saying, yeah, these, uh, these renewal of these Trump-era tax cuts were for that. And then by the same token, you had uh, a lot of Democrats, not all, but some, saying, you know, we're for the renewal and this expansion of the child tax credit. Now, you had liberals like Rosa DeLauro, Democrat from Connecticut, uh, who said it didn't go far enough. Uh, you had New York Republicans, these freshmen, who said, oh, we're not going to vote for this because, and they wouldn't have needed their votes, because it didn't fix SALT, the reduction in state mm -hmm. and local taxes, which was something when they passed the Trump tax cuts, they really stuck it to these high-tax states. So they were going to blow up the House floor, not on this necessarily, but on another bill. And they basically have gotten what they wanted. They went to the Speaker, and there's a separate bill that would change things if you're filing um, jointly married couples, you know, we kind of double the uh, the deduction you could get for assault. Now, the problem, of course, is going to be in the Senate. Can you get 60 votes? Um, you have Chuck Schumer, who's on board with this. You have Ron Wyden, who worked on the bill, wrote the bill. He's the chair of the Finance Committee, Democrat from Oregon, with Jason Smith, who's the chair of the Ways and Means Committee in the House. So, you know, pretty odd bedfellows getting together there. But sure. I think a lot of Republicans in the Senate will object to this because they don't like the size of the child tax credit. And so if they do that, that means they probably can get to 60. Uh, but otherwise, if, if they don't do it, they probably can't get to 60. But then you have different legislative products. You have a House bill, a Senate bill, and near the twain shall meet. Now, maybe if you've got 357 yeses and people say, well, that's not 
you know, they really dial back that child tax credit, you might have a lot of Democrats jump ship, but maybe that works out at the end. I mean, you could probably still get close to 300 votes for something. But again, we're a long way for that. And that's, again, the, the conference mm -hmm. committee, the conference report where they, they blend the bills together, the House version and the Senate version. I don't know. That's Just bring, but, bringing this out. Yeah. Bringing this out a little bit to kind of, you know, end where we began, how unusual is it for a bipartisan tax deal? I mean, serious policy negotiations to kind of take shape and get a final vote in an election year. It was stunning that it came together as quickly as it did. And I had some long conversations with people who really know tax policy and were very skeptical of this, uh, especially those on the right who said there's not enough on the right. Republican wins in this to get GOP members to vote for this. Yes, it came together very quickly. There was a markup that was very quickly in the Ways and Means Committee. It came out of the committee 40 to 3. Uh, wow. you, know, the, you know, you had uh, somebody like Earl Blumenauer, who's a Democrat from Oregon, who said, you know, I'm not for this on paper, uh, the way it looks. He said, but, you know, there's some opportunity in here and I'm okay voting for it. It, it does some of the things I like. So, I mean, yes. He said, yeah, it's not 100%. You had Drew Ferguson, who's a Republican from Georgia, who said, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You hear that a lot here on Capitol Hill. He said, this is the bill that's before us. It's not the exact bill, but, and that's why you were able to get just enough in it for both sides. And when you do that, whether it's Jason Smith and, and Ron Wyden, I mean, you know, big tip of the cap sometimes to when they're able to pull this off because nobody gets exactly what they want. But you put up 357 votes on something like that. That's astonishing. It so is. that tells you they did something right. They, they, they basically were able to get enough good in there to get just enough and more than enough members to cast yay ballots. Well, I'm glad that we were able to, to bring that into the conversation because we do spend a lot of time, and rightly so, discussing a lot of the policy differences. Sometimes there are these uh, pieces of legislation that bring everybody together. Maybe that's the best place to end it uh, this week, a little uh, bipartisanship. So, Chad, always appreciate the discussions. We'll uh, check in next week on uh, immigration in Mayorkas. Yes, absolutely. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Consumers are feeling a lot better about the economy, but the Federal Reserve is still moving cautiously. We'll take a look at the data and projections for a big election issue, inflation. And Texas is in a standoff with the Biden administration over border enforcement. Jessica Rosenthal looks at the legal arguments. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.